0: Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guests today, Benno Zog and Florian Egli. They're both here with their big stories over the weekend. We flipped a coin before uh, just going on air. Benno won the toss. Florian sort of blown out. Benno, you're here with your remarkable
1: tablet full of stories. What have you got for us? Obviously. Good morning, Tyler. And sorry, Florian. I've got... Two stories caught my eye from the world of diplomacy, but believe it or not, it's not about Ukraine. It's about two other contexts that we talk less about, Iran and Ethiopia. But obviously, ramifications all over another context as well.
0: And anything else beyond that? I don't know. You said you had two. Those, those were the two. Those were the two. Okay, very good. Also, <laughs> we're going to be heading to Bangkok to talk to our Gwen Robinson.
2: So Carl from Bangkok, this is Gwen Robinson for Monaco, and I'll be updating you later on the launch of Cannabis Culture here and other intriguing developments also
0: our editor-in-chief andrew tuck will be with us in a few moments uh, with the view from london plus we'll hear the latest developments from france of course election day uh, round three four lost track it's the 19th of june 2022 live from zurich this is monocle on sunday
3: live from zurich this is monocle on sunday with tyler Brunet
0: from and well, not quite sweltering uh, Zurich yet. It's uh, it's rather toasty. They say it's going to go up to 36 degrees. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm Tyler Bruley. I'm going to be looking after you for the next uh, well, 54 minutes uh, or so. I'm very happy to say that Ben O'Zog is here. Of course, uh, you will know that he's uh, with Ateha's Security Studies Program. He's also Monical Security Correspondent. Also, Florian Egli is here as well from Fourhouse the think tank. Uh, anyway, you we sort of ignored you at the top of the show, but you're here now. So, good morning.
4: Good morning, Tyler. Nice to be here.
0: But you know why we ignored you? No idea. You had a tantrum. So he had a tantrum before he went on air. So I should also say we have uh, some guests uh, this morning as well from the American International Club of Zurich. And uh, normally, uh, Ben, there's a certain sort of code. We were talking about codes before and how we sort of stand around the table. And Florian, you've got your spot, but you've moved around (laughs) because we wanted you to present, uh, you know, Appropriately and nicely to all of our guests. It's, this it's morning, it's
4: quite diplomatic. It's like a diplomatic dinner. It's a lot of a lot of discussion about seating. I, I, I don't have a name tag, but well, there was can, an intense we, discussion about seating.
0: We, 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 indeed. Anyway, we, we sort of we managed to sort of you know put a lid on it, didn't we, Beno?
1: Yes, we did, just barely. But he was very resistant, as in diplomacy as well, insisting on some kind of um, whatever code he's he's built, basing his decisions on.
0: And we should have probably just sort of paint a picture for our, our, our listeners. It's a warm day. It's a program in shorts today as well. It is in shorts and Birkenstock. I think yeah, almost all except Ben didn't get. Beno did He didn't, didn't, get, get, he didn't get that, that message <laughs> uh, as well. Uh, also, I'm very happy to say that our editor in chief Andrew Tuck uh, is is in London as well. Andrew, should we start with your attire as well?
5: Uh, yes, sure. So even though it's, it's, it's not quite going to be 33 here, we're, we're going to have a gentle 23 apparently by, by peak this afternoon. So, yeah, as Emma said, the, the, the temperatures dropped last week, after last week's heat, but it's fine. It's all good.
0: And it was one of those weekends as well. We were thinking, hmm, uh, Friday afternoon, uh, why am I not at, at City Airport uh, with a looking maybe at, at a departures board with PMI, Palma on it?
5: There was a point on Friday when I did look quick, quickly to see whether it would be scandalous to go in like two hours time, because all I need nowadays is my passport. But yes, I, somehow I decided perhaps it was wise to stay in London this weekend. OK, so Andrew, tell me, uh, I, I want to talk a little
0: bit and, and maybe, uh, of course, uh, bring in our guests here on the topic of, of course, heat policy and what it means to cities, because, of course, we've had lots of you know, various public service announcements all over Europe. A.A. A. Gill wrote a great piece uh, in, in The Times about, uh, you know, how one should protect themselves from sunshine etc but i want to talk about urban policy in a moment and what what is being done right and wrong in cities but if we opened up the front pages uh in uh, in london uh, this morning um what are we seeing uh, what's what is the discussion uh, still uh, still heatwave uh, or what's going to be uh, certainly the not just the policy focus but uh, just
5: uh, the editorial focus right now there's there's quite a lot of introspection about the the uk today because we're, we're facing a week of uh, national strikes uh, with the railways. So on, uh, on, uh, Starting on Tuesday, we're going to have uh, three days of strikes. On Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, there are national rail strikes. And it won't stop every single train, but it will, it will halve certainly services on most lines. And, and the government is in this terrible position where they're trying to get people back to work. And now suddenly everyone is being told by their companies it, it's back to working from home, really, if you can next week. And it has so many knock ons because it's it's feeding into this this sense that the the cost of living rises here in the UK is ridiculous. So we we're predicting eleven percent. Well, the the banks are saying eleven percent inflation by by November. So all of the unions are gearing up for fights for more pay for their staff. So. It's the teachers have now indicated that there will be national strikes of teachers this year health workers are also saying that they will be looking to go on national strikes this year which is all fine and you know it is right that the unions demand the best for their for their members but it builds into this cycle of inflation that we're seeing so obviously if you get big pay rises for for railway workers who's going to pick up the bill it's going to be the passengers in the form of more expensive tickets and more expensive season tickets so then you have another round of workers who need more money to pay for the season tickets, so this is the bit that everybody's a bit worried about how we're, we're ending we're, we're entering a, a real kind of whirlwind of inflation and Andrew, if you're in charge of the uh, the parliamentary. Holiday roster, uh,
0: or certainly the roster for for the cabinet uh, as well. What what is the spell for, or you know, if we if we look ahead uh, weeks and weeks and months ahead uh, for for the Commons uh, in terms of, yeah, obviously what's going to have to be done in terms of putting out uh, a, a lot of fires, or certainly uh, you know, placating union members uh, and and of course various interest groups. Not to mention, of course, uh, the voting public.
5: Well, it's interesting. because uh, everyone's trying to score points. So the the Tories are saying to Labour ministers. ...or shadow ministers, who, who, what would you do? Would you back the, the strikers or would you back what they call the public? Now, the fact is that Keir Starmer seems to say, well, look, I, I don't think there should be strikes... ...but I, I, I empathise with what's happening to these people... ...and actually it's the fault of government for getting, getting us into this mess. But they are a little bit kind of hamstrung about what they say about the strikes... ...because I don't think even with many Labour-supporting members of the public... they're they're very popular because it's hitting a period where we have huge summer festivals it's over the it's going to um, impact things like glastonbury there's sporting events all are going to be damaged and the hospitality industry is saying just in these three days a billion pounds will be lost from revenue for hotels for restaurants for all of the amenities that they represent while on the tory side i think there's a feeling that you know if they if they are seen as as tough and tough for British people, they might come out of it quite well. But it's against this weird backdrop you know, of Boris endlessly slipping away from the, the, the problem, focusing at the moment on Ukraine, being the, 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 the bravest leader supposedly in Europe on, on that issue. Whereas on the Keir Starmer side, he's facing this, 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 um, this inquiry into whether he broke lockdown rules and he said that he will resign if that happens. So this week as well, on top of that, Tyler, there's also debate about who would take over from him? And the clear front runner is Andy Burnham, uh, the, the the Manchester mayor, who fascinatingly is not an MP. So it would he would need to jump into a by election. But so lots and lots of UK politics this week.
0: And I'm not sure how busy the papers have been with stories about um, what happens, of course, when cities overheat. Uh, of course, we know that neighbors get uh, quite angry. Uh, before before we went on air, uh, I, I sent you a little story that was in the Tagus Anzeiger. But uh, Florian, do you want to pick this this one up? Because also, Beno, will plays it also to your world as well, because it's about conflict resolution as well. It's about diplomacy. This is this is this is you have to say this is lead lead news in this country it's about this morning.
4: Rather, the failure of diplomacy in that case. So right? so, what,
0: so tell us what happened and so, where.
4: So that's a big neighborhood fight um, in Valais and somebody actually made a video of it that went viral and that's kind of the start of it so um there was somebody had a actually it doesn't look like a cozy cozy garden it looks like it's pretty shabby to be honest like in a pretty shabby kind of you know yard you could imagine with a bit of grass but also not so nice. not very loved grass No, no not very loved not very no no not a kind place anyways there was a roast there um so a big a big um I don't know if it was a lamb or a pig, but it was it, a lamb. It was a lamb. It was yeah. a big lamb roast, okay. Um, and and then you know a, a big conflict erupted. And it, it kind of went into into a neighborhood fight about whether um, that was um, that was acceptable or not. And it ended with a with the the neighbor um, coming with a fire extinguisher
0: and, he had, um, and, a pic- and a pickaxe too, didn't he?
4: Yes, yes, some axes involved as well. Um, and then of course afterwards, police and everything. So you know, even in 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 Swiss mountain regions, um, the tensions tensions are rising when temperatures go up so
0: (laughs) yeah and i think the victim in all of this was of course was was the lamb who who got the Yeah. yeah the fire the fire extinguisher content
1: that was ruined, absolutely. Barbecue was ruined, neighbourhood relations were ruined. Um, there was no mediator at sight now bringing in the world of diplomacy, of course. Third parties without stakes in the issue can be very helpful. There was no police, no judge, no, no. friendly neighbour. Um, but to be honest, the story didn't surprise me too, too well. The Valais, this is a mountainous region in Switzerland, is slightly notorious for pecu- peculiarities, Let, let's call it that.
0: Okay, that, that's that's uh, that's diplomatic speak, I guess. For, for you, you want to weigh in on the people in the very ballet as well.
1: To another story,
4: because um, I wanted to mention to the international audience that Swiss, the, the, the largest Swiss supermarket chain, had a vote on whether they will permit alcohol sales or not. So
0: you're talking um, about this is Migro, which this is, a, is, Migros, which exactly. is a, not a small business, it's like a $25 billion Yeah, it's the largest
4: employer in Switzerland, yeah. the largest private employer. Um, and so everybody, so it's a cooperative and everybody who's a member of the cooperative got a ballot and they could say whether or not alcohol would be permitted in these supermarkets, whether they would sell alcohol or not. And one as to know that the founder was very much against the sales of alcohol and tobacco. Um, so that was a huge debate that kept Switzerland busy for months and that's why nobody actually reports the results anymore afterwards because we're all so fed up with it um but the result is that you know two cantons so the ticino the italian part and the valet were actually the ones that were most in favor of selling alcohol so you know that kind of ties very nicely into the conflict story and what i also should say is that apparently benno got a ballot but <laughs> forgot to actually you could have well, tipped in. so he could have it tipped it but
1: yeah that I'm responsible for that low turnout, which is indicative of Swiss democracy and, and politics. Actually, we take so much pride in our regular votes and referenda and so on, but turnout is terrible because of people like me.
0: Andrew, are there any grocery stores in the UK, any chains of scale that do not sell alcohol for, well, yeah, political or um, yeah, pleasant social reasons?
5: No, Britain's fully boozed up. You can go anywhere and get your booze. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no, there's no danger about buying alcohol. Okay, so Andrew, I want to bring in this topic. So I think it was obviously it was a bit
0: toasty in the valet. This is why uh, the, the two gentlemen got, uh, got angry. Um, it's a hot day. Maybe there's nowhere for them to cool off, even though, you know, they're in... A part of the country which is has higher altitudes, etc. Never, nevertheless, uh, this this all goes wrong. And as as I was saying a little bit earlier, we have all of these yeah, public service, you know, policy announcements. How do you stay cool in cities, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And these these are things which are, of course, are issued because maybe uh, you know the the horses has already bolted it up at that point. You know, in many ways, cities you know, are just not designed uh, in the right way. And of course, as we look at uh, the the mercury ticking upwards now, of course. Um, Aside from being the editor chief of the magazine, you are the host of The Urbanist. It's a topic that you're looking at all the time. So I'm curious, Andrew, where do policy planners, developers, mayors, where do they go wrong when we start to think about our cities today? And obviously, these are not policies that could have been you know, put into action four years ago. These are mistakes that were made quite a while ago when we think about the amount of tarmac that's in cities and, and why things heat up to the level that they do.
5: Well, I think you're right, Tyler. There's, there's, there's two interesting things here. There's things that actually do change the temperatures. So when you think about hard surfaces, that tarmac is is a terrible reflector and a holder of heat. So when Catherine Gustaf, Gustafsson, the, the, the landscape architect, was talking in Paris on stage about the project that she's doing around the Eiffel Tower, one of the biggest things they're trying to do there is take out as many hard surfaces as possible, And to replace them with planting and with grass and to get people to be walking on on softer surfaces because it does drop the the temperature the other thing i think is interesting is that the thing you you know you referred to there as well which is almost the illusion of cool because if you have proximity to flowing water to fountains it doesn't actually change the temperature but it does actually change your your feeling about how hot you are so that those spluttering fountains that you see in Rome—they have more than a purpose to uh, you know, be beautiful. That they they do give the sense of coolness. And then again, you have this this, this notion of placing places where people can actually get you know, drinkable water around the cities. You know, the, the the day of the water fountain has slightly been lost and, and should be revived. But again, in Paris, when I was walking around, I tried to start taking pictures of things that made the city a little bit cooler, because I thought that actually they had quite a lot of good things in place. So when you, I went through lots of the parks on the, on the hottest days, they had these great little misters set up in the, in the play areas. And the kids were going crazy for running under all these cooling misters. So it's only children were safe to play out in that heat. When you look at the way that they use trees and the canopies and squares, which they use trees uh, boxed and cut and trimmed, to, and so they form an actual kind of roof above people. So they know how to use planting. And then the colonnades so that people can walk in the shade. These are the things that you need to build in architecture because they just keep you out out of the heat all day. So Andrew just, I need to clear that up when you said small
0: misters these are these are not like <laughs> little gentlemen with, with hoses or, or
5: or are they Well no no, not little gentlemen they they 're kind of like they stand about eight foot high and they, they have a big circular disc on the top and they 're just spraying out this fine cooling mist everywhere. And there was, there was one set up in a little park that I ran through, and there must have been like 40 little kids kind of like rushing to get underneath it, parents too. But it was, it was just a sense that they could be out in the midday still playing in the park and that they could be safe because they were being cooled down. So
4: Tyler has unfortunately left his mic because he's been chased by a bee. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. This
1: is, sorry, so wait, I, we're, we're, we're in, we're I, in I, I no summer here. I know, I, thought, I, sure it's it's dangerous. Dangerous. I don't even know where sure, it came from. As you know. well, anyway,
0: it's, gone. Um, so it's another <laughs> yeah,
5: consequence of this temperature, Tyler. <laughs> exactly.
0: But Andrew, how do, how do you square this though, um, as well? Because on one side, we, we've you know we've seen parasols you know disappear because you know for various health and safety reasons. Because of course, uh, sometimes they come down. To too low, someone might be walking along the pavement, they might bump their head. So, you know, we, we saw sort of, you know, policies against those. And in Zurich, you know, one of the problems is there is there is so much tarmac now because the city wants a, a smooth surface. And this has to do with accessibility issues, of course, for the disabled, uh, for people who need to get to the airport with their wheelie suitcases, you know, they, they want to have a smooth city. So how do you how do you square this I mean, between health and safety measures, but also making a
5: city indeed cooler? Well, I think we know the answer, Tyler. And in fact, you, you do have the answer there in Switzerland often, which is you know, the, the notion of the awning. And again, the, wh- where did the awning go in other cities? Because when you look at pictures of Victorian London or Edwardian London, if you walk down any of the streets in, in any neighbourhood, nothing to do with class or to do with wealth, the, you would see houses, every store would have a pull-down Uh, canopy that would come over the the groceries, would shade the window in summer, would provide this moment of cool. And now we've gone to a world of endless plate glass windows and these horrible kind of snaking tubes from air con units being pumped out into the street, meanwhile leaving the door open at exactly the same time. So I think that we, we, we lost some of the common sense things about what you need to build into a city to keep them cool. And, and
0: finally, just uh, Andrew, for lessons from Spain. Uh, of course, uh, you're spending a little bit of, of time in in Palma as well. So you, know, you can say on one side that, uh, of course, you know, good landscape architecture, this un- this, this notion of uh, of a canopy, um, and again, that's that's not something which spreads, you know, certainly over every Spanish city. But if you if you look at, I can think back to when we did our conference in Madrid a few years ago. You know, here is a city that, in many parts, you know, has. You know, quite a remarkable, you know, urban canopy. And you know, again, you know, we're talking about trees that you know were planted over a hundred years ago. Uh, so you, this, these canopies can't come about overnight. But um, yeah, if you, if you sort of looked from your terrace in Spain, uh, and any lessons uh, that the Spanish do well.
5: Well, it's funny as you, as everyone will guess. Now I, I own a tiny place in, in in Mallorca and when we went to buy it, we are, we are Spanish friends. You know, we had some options and things, and everyone said go on go on the shady side of the building that's much better your your furniture won't get singed by by the heat make sure that you have enough of a, a balcony above you that will give you shade and protection but actually in the current issue we have a, a nice story about a, a spanish company based in majorca olab and they've just built this building which the idea is you never have to turn on air conditioning you never have to turn on heat because it's a passive house building and they've used the notions of through breezes of of shutters and 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 wooden slats on the front of the building to break down and and make sure that the harshest sun doesn't get into the building in, in the first place and i think this is the other thing about older spanish buildings you notice that actually they, they didn't go for big windows. They went for some dark spaces within the core of the building. So there, there was a place that was cool and calmer. And I think they've also picked up a little bit in this contemporary architecture that Olab is doing. So yeah, get the issue because it's got some really interesting ideas in there, as well as, I must say, a great interview with the, the heat officer for Athens who explains what that city is doing as well to try and keep temperatures cool. Uh, just uh, maybe we'll, we'll move from urban policy to to foreign policy.
0: But at the top of the program, uh, you you flagged a, a story taking, of, of course, uh, to uh, current current conflict as well, but also some maybe some players who've been um, a little bit missed. Uh, yeah, I, I've been absent in the mix anyway.
1: That's really that. I think generally the way the media and our own attention works, we can be focused on one or two contexts, um, while others end up being neglected. But there was a a big story in this week's Zeit on Iran and Iran's nuclear program and the diplomacy around it. And it's this classical story about international diplomacy that has really all the ingredients on it. Just a bit of background, in 2015, the the Iran nuclear deal, so-called, the JCPOA, was concluded with all five permanent members of the Security Council being signature, uh, as well as Iran, Germany and the EU, that essentially was a deal of um, the, the world or the international community or the West lifting sanctions against Iran for Iran not enriching uranium anymore that would bring them closer to the nuclear bomb. And obviously Donald Trump unilaterally left this agreement and derailed all of it. And now negotiations in Vienna, um, where the International Atomic Energy Agency is based, are ongoing to salvage that because under Joe Biden, of course, there's a bit of an opening there. And it's really interesting because obviously Iran and the U.S. are not talking directly, as one does so. There's shuttle diplomacy by other diplomats between exchanging these letters, as it sometimes works. And apparently, there's one sticking point, and that's where the why the title of the whole article is staring contest. There's one issue left, which is that the U.S. lists the Revolutionary Guards of Iran as a terrorist organization. Um, that must be a very long list of terrorist organizations, but it's on it. And Iran, of course, wants that lifted. And now it's about who blinks first. So there's more or less agreement on everything um, but this one issue. And I'd like to make a wider point on that because obviously solving this Iran case would be so important for the region because if Iran gets close to the bomb, so will others, the Saudi Arabias and so on um, of this world. And also Iran is in a bit of domestic crisis or instability because, well, rising prices for food which destabilizes um, the whole the whole country. And were Iran to be included back in the international community, were it allowed to trade with the world, for example, in oil, this could also remedy partially at least um, these high energy prices that we see and that destabilizes loads of context. So it's kind of all in there, but there's this one sticking point where everyone kind of insists on their point, Probably for domestic reasons, as always. So in Iran, hardliners are currently um, in power, and in the U.S., were Joe Biden to compromise on that, he would obviously be attacked by the by the Republicans. So these kind of somewhat silly reasons that are not even directly linked to to the issue of a nuclear bomb in the Middle East, yet another one, um, is derailing all of that and has ramifications on wider energy and food markets in the world. So it's an interesting one. It is. Classic diplomacy, where it really boils down to some of these symbolic issues. Mm.
0: Florian, just uh, from from your perspective, when you when you think, okay, uh, maybe the clients that you work with at at Four uh, and certainly thinking about maybe the people that you know who are working at at various uh, foreign ministries. Uh, you know, whether uh, on this continent or, or around the world, you have Ukraine on one side. Then, as, as Ben said, you've got you know, a variety of issues which and, and which would have been critical on on any other news day in any other news cycle, but they are they're not even you know down page in international news headlines now. So, how much capacity uh, do you? you know, whether it's an organization like yours that yes, you have to focus your your resources on one side. To dealing with something which is certainly on our doorstep in, in, in Europe, uh, but of course there there are a myriad of other topics as well. So maybe that's what we get it. Our smart think tanks, of course, for us would probably be one of them, um, also looking sort of well over the horizon as well, thinking uh, where should we be looking next, and and certainly and also directing your clients and in your partnership base as to what should be a focus of opportunity.
4: I think so. The the capacities point is is very important, right? And I think a lot has been. Kind of, you know, too focused in a sense during COVID first, and then you know, with the with the um, with the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So a lot of the the public policy, but also foreign policy capabilities, have been focused on on these two kind of main issues: global pandemic and and war at the doorsteps of Europe. But to some extent, you know, sometimes I have the feeling it, it might not be only a, a capacities um, problem because what what Beno mentioned that a lot of these things are, you know. Um, tied to you know domestic political threats, so to say, or like what you have to do to domestically actually fend off your um, your competitors. Um, I think you know there might even be an opportunity here that this is not you know front and square in the headlines. It's not actually out there. Um, a lot of these stories kind of are a bit under the table at the moment. It's a bit calmer waters, um, and I think there is so much also energy in the in the political debate and in the in the public, you know, debate in newspapers, etc. On now the, the 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 conflict in Ukraine, but as the pandemic is coming up again, I mean we've heard it um, from Andrew as well. So I think there is an opportunity even um, for such deals like the one with Iran to actually advance now because it is a bit, you know in the kind of back rooms and it is not front and square in the in the public attention and if you look at what's happening or what Beno described in this in this deal um with iran it seems like there is really um a, a case where there are there are interests on both sides that are you know quite mutual so in a sense like there is really there is a pretty clear path forward um and 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 for these situations it might even help if it's a bit you know in the back rooms and and actually um and less kind of politically um you know, in the
0: heat of, the, of, the, of things. Uh, Andrew, just to, before we uh, go back to Emma with the news headlines, uh, just uh, maybe your, uh, your forward view, if you think about, of course, the Foreign Office, what they have to deal with right now, as you said, of course, we have Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you know, very much out there um, becoming sort of, you know, the other sort of poster child, as you said, for the, for the rest of Europe, uh, for the Ukraine cause. But this focus element, looking at what the UK has ahead of it in terms of domestic policy, does it concern you that we end up with another eye off the ball moment?
5: Look, things are not... Going well, and you you, you read the the right wing press. I just read a, a story this morning saying that you know, the reason that things aren't going very well is because of you know uh, civil servants in the ministries who have, have stopped us benefiting from leaving the EU. So I think the narrative is we haven't benefited benefited from leaving the EU, but now they're trying to look around who, who they blame for for, for the the state we're in. Meanwhile, we have this fight going on about whether we should send. Um, people waiting to see whether they can migrate into the country to rwanda we have the northern ireland protocols being picked apart and another fight with the eu maybe a, a one that will go to court up ahead it's a mess and it's a mess when you have so many domestic things going on and in a way mess sometimes helps boris johnson because everyone gets a little bit distracted and as i said Keir Starmer certainly is but i don't think that he's you know it's the one place that he can show simple leadership on. And I think he's hoping that will get him out. And he, he has two by-elections this week, which everyone's wondering whether he can get through either of them. So it's a mess. And, and he's, he's using this Ukraine thing in a little bit. Of course he believes in it, but he's using it as a, as a shield as well. Just, just in, and before we go, Florian just uh, has one point to add to the
0: mess. Florian, go it's ahead. It's
4: interesting because the mess, I think, is, is very much the same or similar. It's other topics, but it's also a huge mess in Switzerland. Right? Our government can't get their acts together in the negotiation with the European unions. We're in huge conflicts. What is actually neutrality when it comes to arms sales? Um, and at the same time, you know, domestically... Um, as well, it's it's really it's really unclear like where leadership is, and I think the, the interesting thing is here it's seven people in the executive branch, and nobody can really capitalize on it. It's kind of like it seems like the whole government is floating at the moment.
0: Mm. And but Andrew, you know that uh, of course Germany um, created, of course, the the ultimate tool for that mess. You own one of them. It's yellow. It's got it's got a hose, um, and, and and probably that's what we need. Everyone needs a good a bit of a spray down, don't they?
5: Yeah, get your cartridge
0: out and blow these people away. That's Andrew's Sunday sorted. Andrew, good to talk to you. Uh, We're a little bit adrift of bottom of the hour, but uh, Emma Nelson is still there with the news headlines.
6: Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Voters in France are taking part in the second round of the country's parliamentary elections. President Emmanuel Macron is now hoping to obtain a parliamentary majority, but his party is facing a challenge from a new leftist alliance led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon. The Ukrainian government has vowed it will prevail against Moscow. Russia's assault continues and intensifies in the east of the country. One of Japan's biggest employers, the telecommunications firm NTT, has said it will permanently move a large proportion of its staff to home working from next month. And a 10-day-old goat may have just set the record for the longest ears recorded on a kid. It's astonished its owner in Pakistan when it was born with ears measuring 19 inches, or 46 centimetres. Although dogs with the longest ears have made it into the Guinness Book of World Records, there are no goats with the same honour yet. And those are the headlines. Back to you in Zurich, Tyler.
0: Emma, we don't want to say that goat in a windstorm, do you?
6: Oh, it's absolutely beautiful, but the poor little thing will take off like a helicopter in a wind. It's enormous. They, they drag along the... Um, I can't necessarily say that it's not going to have a few issues. It's not going to have to work through when it grows. But it's 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 an absolutely beautiful little creature. It's lovely.
0: Very good. <laughs> Emma Nelson uh, in London. It's uh, just gone uh, ten uh, thirty four here uh, in Zurich. Uh, time to head to uh, Bangkok uh, now. Our correspondent uh, there, Gwen Robinson, uh, is standing by. Good morning. Sawadee ka, Gwen.
2: Sawadee <laughs> ka,
0: uh, so you had teased uh, our listeners at the top of the program, and, and this is a story which uh, has, of course, been gaining headlines uh, all over the place. And of course, this is the cannabis story. Uh, we're talking about medicinal use uh, cannabis uh, in, in Thailand. Uh, and this comes at a very interesting time, of course, uh, a moment uh, yet, or yet another moment as the country starts to, to reopen. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, it's, it's played you know, one way internationally, but how is it playing out domestically in Thailand?
2: Well, in, indeed, I think mean, we were all surprised that the, the tides actually went ahead with it. Um, but it has been, you know, speculated on for a long time and there were there were incremental uh, softening of, of rules, including that it's, it's long been an open secret that you can get the, the CBD oil, the cannabis oil, for me- strictly for medical uses uh, for some time now, but all sort of sold quietly over the internet. But um, this new uh, opening uh, actually they're calling it medical and health reasons but it seems to have ushered in an explosion of we've got you know even chain cafes uh, like Black Canyon which is a popular uh, chain uh, coffee shop uh, offering cannabis drinks um, on the internet there's lists uh, being posted of places to go and buy cannabis and the the rules so far seem to suggest that it can be consumed It cannot be smoked in public places, but like everything in Thailand, it's all sort of different shades of grey, or should we say green? It's not clear really what you can and can't do. But what is clear, I think, is you can't traffic it in big amounts. The next step, of course, is that there is a a bill going through Parliament which will add the, the fine print, the regulations of what exactly you can and can't do. But it is an extraordinary step, and it has led to, you know... Everything from cannabis cuisine to, as I said, cannabis drinks. Uh, so it all seems to be um, go, go, go on that front.
0: And just to quickly before we move on, Gwen, from a policy perspective, uh, if, if I'm, of course, from one of the other parties or I'm uh, writing an op-ed for the Bangkok Post, why now?
2: <laughs> you always ask the, the difficult questions. Um, it's I think also an open secret that there are some very powerful interests uh, invested in uh, cannabis, including the, some leading right up to certain key ministers, let's say, in government who've been strong advocates. And in fact, the health minister, Deputy Prime Minister Anaton has uh, been a very strong advocate. He has, let's say, very close uh, relations with people who are invested in big cannabis uh, plantations offshore and also now in uh, in his home province of Buriram which uh, he's actually declared could be a model for uh, a convergence between uh, the medical industry and cannabis producers and uh, they are encouraging and there is actually quite an economic case which is it's a very uplifting thing for poor farmers who maybe are not making much money on rice or or low-level crops and now I think uh, some politicians are actively encouraging farmers to, to switch over to growing cannabis. So who knows? We might have fields and fields of cannabis covering Thailand in, in coming years.
0: I mean, there seems to be a, bit of, a of a liberalization theme going on uh, in, in Thailand uh, at the moment. Of course, we have uh, COVID restrictions uh, being further relaxed, uh, but also a discussion, of course, in parliament as well uh, in, in Thailand uh, about uh, legalization of gay marriages as well.
2: Well, that's yes, it's been quite a month. Uh, that, that bill to legalise same-sex marriages uh, has been going through the same time as cannabis. So, you know, people... Vis- I had a friend visiting Thailand the other day who was going, what's going on here? Um, and at the same time as people are now being actually encouraged to rip their masks off, their COVID masks. So it all seems to be this massive burst of liberalisation. The same-sex marriage thing is interesting because it's still one... I think anyone who's ever been to Thailand knows how liberal and open they are about both, um, you know, gender changes and and sexuality. But uh, there's still a lot of conservatism at the top, and there's quite a bit of resistance to actually going ahead with legalizing full-blown gay marriage. So there's now a big debate in Parliament about uh, whether to go ahead and legalize what they call same-sex civil union versus full marriage. and typically tight they're pushing through about four different bits of legislation which will then be reconciled and lawmakers will probably have to choose between one or the other and of course you know lgbt advocates are pushing very strongly against same sex civil union they want the full marriage thing so i think that will be that will actually be quite a battle but the fact that they got this far i think is is very significant and you can imagine the effect on neighbours such as, you know, for example, Singapore, where sodomy is still actually a crime, and uh, many other Asian countries are deeply uncomfortable with um, with legalising or open displays of uh, homosexuality. Let's say so. I think that's also unsettling some of the region. Let alone the cannabis law. My God, people are still being put in jail uh, for so much as a matchbox of uh, of cannabis in uh, certain countries surrounding uh, this one.
0: But that, that was going to just um, be my next point, Gwen, from a regional policy point of view and maybe from, well, not just a, a soft power, but I would say certainly from yeah a, a diplomatic status point of view, this, this is quite something um, and how it could not completely upend, but maybe unsettle the neighborhood. So do you think that this is also as, as much as from top leadership? Is this also... Yeah, from a, a, yeah, you could say sort of a public diplomacy point of view that that Thailand is doing this to also position itself coming out of the pandemic as, you know, almost out of nowhere as this even more progressive player within the the APEC neighborhood.
2: That's such a good point. And you're absolutely right. I think there are elements in Thailand. A lot of it follows this deeply, deeply destructive, long, prolonged lockdown in Thailand, which was heavily reliant on tourism. And as we know, I mean, they hit 40 million tourists a year just before COVID and they're down to about less than one million last year, far less. And uh, there's a huge push to rebuild not just the tourism industry, but Thailand's image. And I think a push to brand it as cool and progressive. They've got a bit of an image problem, let's say, because they're still looking people up for criticising the monarchy, for example, and there's still protesters on the street. But I think... There are very uh, strong movements to to push ahead with these kind of things, and uh, as you point out, from a public diplomacy viewpoint, for Thailand, it's a good thing. It's liberal. I think Western uh, Thailand's Western partners actually, I mean, have sat up, taken notice, and, and welcome it. But I think regionally, it's not playing that well. But nobody in the inscrutable ASEAN way, I think. None of the countries will come out and say anything openly, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot of raised eyebrows. Mind you, I did read that Malaysia is also considering some level of decriminalizing drugs, but I think it'll be a long way before we see, um, we see homosexuality sort of being embraced and even encouraged with uh, gay marriages in any of the neighboring countries.
0: Finally, Gwen, Just before we go, uh, it seems that uh, again uh, on on the liberal uh, track as well, there's going to be a bit of a shift uh, in terms of what's happened with alcohol policy uh, as part of the COVID uh, restrictions being being lifted. Uh, you know, I, I know that uh, even, even even at the best of times, sometimes it's a little bit strange in terms of what the the alcohol uh, policies are in in Thailand. But um, I guess there's there's also been a ban on sales um, in in the middle of the afternoon, which seemed to be going by the wayside.
2: Well oh, yes well let 's not get too optimistic about that it's It's something I think uh even uh, repeat visitors uh aren 't really aware of. There is this ridiculous policy that from two p m to five p m every day you cannot buy alcohol, but they don 't tell you that so you can go to a supermarket, stock up with your wines and beers, get to the checkout, and they say you can 't buy this until five o'clock so that's been going on for you know for since a, a very long time and uh there's now, um, lo and behold, a push to reconsider that ban. But at the same time, in reviewing COVID restrictions and announcing to the world that Thailand is almost fully open and they're abandoning all this Thai pass uh, pre-flight registration processes and testing, they still are insisting that all bars and entertainment venues must close by midnight. And I think that is also causing some stress too. Thailand's once very vibrant entertainment industry uh, because to close at midnight, you really have to kick people out at 11. This doesn't fit with a city that never sleeps and uh, some of the tourist areas as well. So, you know, that's also something to uh, deal with. But I think this long-hated, for some people, uh, ban on alcohol sales in the middle of the day, which was justified as help stopping school children buying alcohol, God knows, wouldn't a smart kid just... Get up early and go out before two o'clock to buy their booze but anyway there you go i think there will be more of a push to reform that but i think that will be uh, they'll do drugs and uh and uh gay marriage first probably
0: gwen robinson our correspondent in bangkok always uh, very good uh, to chat to you uh you're listening to monocle on sunday we're going to wait for a short break uh, in a moment when we come back uh, more stories and also we'll be heading to paris
6: Estens has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest—a quality that's prioritized by Peter Hornung, founder of sustainable swimwear brand Round Rivers. To keep his startup moving, Hornung knows he needs quality sleep.
1: To be well
5: rested is my recipe, not losing the overall picture. Leading a startup means dealing with daily surprises and challenges. They sum up on an hourly basis and I've experienced that I lose myself in irrelevant tasks just to get rid of those to-dos. Being well rested means for me having enough sleep, daily sport routines, healthy food, meeting my best friends. It gives me freedom and makes me happy. With this relaxed and positive mindset I'm able to zoom out. I can sort my work and differentiate between relevant and irrelevant topics. I start seeing the bigger picture again and know exactly which topics are essential for developing my business.
6: Head to Hestons.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps Peter Hornung and the world's creative and business leaders too. Hestons, be awake for the first time in your life.
0: Welcome back to Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Florian Egli is also here at Ben-O-Tsog. Uh Florian, uh, we're going to head to Paris in a moment, uh, but before we get there, uh, anything else for us? I think you have this bit of a French angle on your story maybe as well.
4: We're going to France, yes, we are. It's one hour um, um, out, of, uh, out of Paris. It's called Villepinte, and in Villepinte, uh, um, I've never been there. I don't know how it looks, but apparently, um, almost a hundred thousand visitors gather um, for an arm sales fair. So that's about two point five times. The um, number of visitors of yesterday's Pride in Zurich, which was the record Pride, um, and and it just struck me as a, as an incredible example of you know how how kind of you know wh- what topics dominate um, our world at the moment. So ninety two countries are present, two hundred and sixty delegations. It's a huge fair and interestingly or a bit ironically even so that if you want to see the the weapons in action if you want to see the demonstrations they've built like a desert zone so they still live in this area I also where, wonder who's buying yeah exactly <laughs> but but so the whole the whole kind of you know um, motivation for that, or is all you know, the situation in Ukraine, and yet they demonstrate their weapons in a in a desert setting. So they they're stuck, you know, um, in this in this notion that wars are only happening in deserts. But um, so that's that's kind of the fun, uh, the funny part of it. But. I find it interesting that, you know, the, the arms sales are, are through the roof, um, company stocks are up, um, Germany, of course, um, um, famously committed 100 billion, Switzerland increased his military budget, France has done the same, so across Western Europe, military budgets are really on the rise, and, and stocks of these companies are going up, and, and there is a big discussion um, kind of on the back of this that, you know, um, a lot of people at the moment lose a lot of money in stock markets because stocks kind of um, fall off the cliff, yet, you know, arms companies your
0: your crypto is uh (laughs) my crypto
4: portfolio is gone right you know so i I mean i forgot my code anyway so it's okay no, but so so it's really a question of, you know, wh- whether these companies are kind of coming back into the public as even, you know, some some companies helping us to kind of defend our values, our democracies and might, you know, find their ways into into sustainable portfolios again, because they've been excluded, right? It was kind of the first, in the, you know, 20, 30 years back, the first step towards more sustainable investing was, you know, get arm sales and tobacco companies out of your portfolios. And now there is all this question, you know, are these companies actually something we need and it's not something that is again you know just happening in the back rooms and governments are negotiating with them but now all of a sudden a hundred thousand people go to this fair it's kind of out square in the public and i think there is a huge question about you know how we handle these and how we as western democracies actually um you know handle these companies do we want them do we need them are they providing value are they you know serving dictators what are they actually doing and how do we how do we reconcile with the fact that we're we're so we, we, we pride ourselves standing for peace, and yet we, we have these, these armed companies in our countries, and they might be necessary.
0: Beno, but power through peace, No.
1: <laughs> oh, well, and yeah, peace through power. It's, it's a tough one. If we look at just this very article and you see photos of Nigerian generals enjoying French hors d'oeuvre, we see this desert setting, which does, of course, indicate what kind of customers they're looking for. And the tourist is taking a selfie with Leclerc tank. And on the other page, there's a French César, howitzer those very ones that are delivered to Ukraine now. So kind of this showcasing something that is as lethal as it gets and and kind of as a society and and as countries reconciling to what extent these industries are necessary and we should cultivate them and make sure there is innovation because there's still other powers that are very ready to use um, these kind of tools but, it, but it's a very tricky one. It's very political and it feeds into all these debates we're having, including, for example, in Switzerland on neutrality, who can receive Swiss tanks. We don't send them to Ukraine, but we do send them to Saudi Arabia. So where does this, this take us? Um, and just a, a, another point on that. It's reflected in, for example, the whole energy market and negotiations around that. Um, we're boycotting Russian oil and buy more from Qatar and Saudi Arabia and so on. Um, again, what kind of dependencies are we creating in that? It's it's a tricky one and don't think there's a there's a clear solution.
0: Indeed not. Uh, it's a time to, uh, well, we're, you took us to France, uh, to Villepin, uh, <laughs> Florian. Uh, we're now heading uh, to the 20th arrondissement right now. Uh, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by Florence. Martin Kessler, very good uh, friend of the Monaco family, also the co-founder, editor-in-chief of Live Magazine. Their big event is coming up in Arles in a few weeks. Uh, Bonjour, Florence.
3: Bonjour, Tyler.
0: Uh, well, listen, uh, maybe just first, I think you have to answer a question because uh, Florian, he doesn't know what, uh, what Villepin looks like. Uh, so is, is, is this a, a nice looking uh, town, yeah, banlieu of Paris?
3: Villepin is really near uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport in the north of Paris. And it's, it's a massive uh, fair, uh, you know, the, a, a huge um, place where uh, you can have a fair from a design uh, to uh, w- weapons and Satori, this, uh, this big arm first he's been talking about, is uh, very spectacular. Actually, we recently did a story about it because uh, it's just very odd to see all these, you know, uh, ladies demonstrating for uh, munitions and uh, huge tanks. Uh, it's a story by Guillaume Herbeau that uh, I thought is uh, half ironical and half... Uh, uh, it's very powerful and interesting to think about uh, war away from the front lines, because uh, of course war, war is a huge market as, as well, as you well know. But talking to the elections that are happening today, uh, one thing for sure is that the the fact that France is the third uh, arms manufacturer in the world has not been uh, at all discussed in the in the programs of so, you know this war and peace business is not something that is on programs at all.
0: It's interesting, though, because on, on one side, you, you say that, and of course, we had, you know, very high profile imagery, uh, of of course, of Mr. Macron uh, in his overnight uh, train wagon uh, heading towards uh, Kiev as, as well. And and of course, as as, um, as Ben was mentioning you know, a bit earlier, of course, you know, France, of course, being one of the biggest arms producers. So it's interesting that, you know, from an employment point of view, even to a foreign policy point of view, it's just not part of the platforms, Florence. He, any any said- reason... That stands out. Why not?
3: There is this tension in France always about some kind of taboo thing. The employment in the arms sector is massive. Uh, A friend of mine who is a prominent journalist here, Anne Poiret, has done a very uh, interesting investigation in how to see where those factories are. They're in the central they're in the center of France. It's impossible to approach. You cannot have testimonies of all those worker. It's dozens of thousands of uh, of jobs that are in place, and so you have, you know, the same for the, um, you know, climate sector. If any polluting or energy uh, industries. These are kind of, uh, you know, dark corners that are not uh, discussed uh, very openly. Uh, in the newspapers or in the public discussions um i don't know why because I, I, in the end of it uh, people want their jobs and france is very fractured uh between uh along those lines but uh, you will keep your job uh, in a weapons factory and at the same time maybe you will uh, vote for uh, the some of the more uh, radical parties on the right or on the left
0: Mm. Just to bring us up to speed then, uh, you mentioned election, uh, and uh, here we are with, with another round. And of course, uh, in many ways, the story has been so dominant, of uh, course, at uh, the cross of, of the week, uh, a, an erosion of uh, certainly uh, the, the Macron uh, position and what this will mean uh, in, in Parliament. Uh, what's the mood in Paris uh, on a Sunday morning?
3: I was just watching the, you know, the the thread of Le Monde and the, they was just uh, having a girl who say, well, I voted to the left because it was just too hot last night. And it's true. It was uh, 37 degrees in Paris last night, which is um, very, very warm and uh, unheard of. And uh, the mood, the mood is like there is this massive abstention, which is, uh, you know, structural and not uh, only in France, but uh, it's a record on the Fifth Republic, 52 percent last Sunday. Uh, It's a bit, um, you know, uh, Marine Le Pen uh, is uh, up 6 percent again, so one million voters. And I was talking to a friend uh, who reported from Le Monde uh, this week. And she was uh, she was away from Paris, maybe in a in a you know in in a kind of Villepinte-like kind of a neighborhood, uh, away from the big cities, in a, not really the suburbs, not really the countryside, and she was kind of struggling to find uh, voters for Macron. And she had no trouble at all to have people who wanted their full names and their photograph and their photo in the newspaper saying they were voting for Marine Le Pen. So that's definitely a shift, this pride, this kind of assumed vote uh, that you maybe are, uh, you know, you have a shop in a small city and you're going to very proudly say you vote for uh, Marine Le Pen. So that's uh, that's definitely a, a bit new, I guess. And um, yeah, there's been a lot of talk, and you were t- telling me about the news on a Sunday morning. What is the Republic? You know, what is for this Republican France stand for? Uh, Macron has been firmly saying that he's the only one, uh, you know, embodying the values of the French Republic, and uh, that both Mélenchon and Le Pen were this uh, danger- dangerous extremist uh, that uh, did not belong to this Republican scope. Uh, and it, he used, it's, it's new for him to include Mélenchon in this, and people have been a bit shocked about that.
0: Uh, just just before we go, and, and very quickly, because we're just approaching the end of the programme, um, maybe uh, time for a, a bit of a shameless plug from your side as well. Any of our listeners who are going to be in the south of France, uh, of course, over, over the coming weeks, but in particular in the lead up to July 8th, uh, you have a rather large event. Tell us about it in 30 seconds or less.
3: So uh, Live Magazine, which I started, is a journalism show. We put journalists in theatres, and in this case, in Arles, which is the biggest photography festival in the world, in an antique theatre of 2,000 seats, uh, which was built in the first century. So you're sitting in the warm night and facing... A, a gigantic screen with a rock band uh, playing music, and at the same time, we will tell you, uh, you know, stories uh, from all over the world with a, with a very visual component, trying to be funny and uh, dramatic and uh, true. And uh, Live Magazine tries to, uh, you know, make journalism in a different way, uh, but with live people telling stories to people who actually buy tickets. And it's been a, a, big, um, a, a big success in a way. Uh, we're trying to reach people who are very far from politics and, uh, and journalism. That's what makes us a kind of... Uh, and
0: just, just before we go, uh, see, are there still seats available?
3: Absolutely. Livemagazine.com. Okay.
0: Very good live magazine.com. Uh, Florence Martin Kessler, thank you very, very much. And see, Florian, look at journalists on stage, just like today, almost live performances. You see, if you get to Fabulous. the right side of the table, but, it's fantastic. But it's out and, and not deforestation. Indeed, we have to leave it there. <laughs> Florian Egli, Ben Ozog, Andrew Tuck, Emma Nelson, all in Zurich and London. Also, Gwen Robinson in Bangkok. Florence Martin Kessler in Paris for us. Our producers today, Desiree Bandley and Emma Nelson, our studio manager in Zurich, Desi again. And back in London, it's been uh, Christy Grady. I'm Tyler Burleigh. Thanks very much for joining us. A warm day uh, in Zurich Uh, ahead and
6: have a very good week. Thanks very much. Goodbye.